welcome to the JMS Podcast with Jorge M. Sanchez. We have a great episode today. It is action-packed. Today's main guest is musician Zach Bateman. He comes over and he gives a chat about his music influence and about his documentary, which is called Underground Under Review. It's about the ghost ship fire. And uh, he asks a lot of hard questions and uh, at the same time a celebration of the local art scene in Oakland, California. So look forward for that. But before we get there, we have a exhibit this segment with Miranda Caravallo. She went downtown San Jose and visited a small gallery to check out the works of local artist uh, Steve French. But before we go through all of that, ladies and gentlemen, this is the part in the beginning of the podcast episode why I bother you once again to subscribe to the JMS podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. It is at the tip of your fingertips, right there on your keyboard. Go ahead. I'll wait. You got it in your hands now? All right. Type in jmspodcast.com. Check out all the content available to you right there and then. If you'd like to help this podcast to uh, continue going, it is a small operation uh, here in San Jose, California, you can donate on Patreon. So on the website, go to ads and donations, and there you go. The Patreon link is available to you right there. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can also use the GoFundMe campaign. Anything helps. Even if it's just a dollar a month, it goes a long way. And uh, I have a special announcement. Um, I waited a bit to make sure we the details are all are all together. I'm still waiting for the flyer, but uh, I think uh, I think right now there's an event on Facebook. But we are having the very first JMS podcast comedy event. It is going to be at the Ritz, uh, a venue in downtown San Jose. It's going to be on November 29th once again at the Ritz. Doors open at 8 p.m. Show starts at 8.30. Uh, we got some great talent coming aboard. Our headliner is comedian Tina Allen Gallo. She was uh, our guest here on podcast episode number 37. That was early in the game. And featured other comedians is Dave Zanoni, who was a guest on episode 47. Chase Doherty, who now has his own segment of um, of going viral so he he's a familiar face Amy Shank she was a comedian here on episode 105 PX Floro another comedian who was a, a guest on this podcast on episode 12 and Faco episode 14 and 79 trust me this is going to be a great show come on out on Wednesday November 29th at the Ritz in downtown San Jose the address is 400 South 1st Street, San Jose, California, zip code 95113. I will be there. I'll be hosting the event, and it's a good opportunity to meet all you listeners. So come on down. Come on down on November 29th. I forgot to mention that it is a free event. Whoa, check that out. A free comedy show here? Of course. So that's another reason to bring all your friends Tell them it's a free show at the Ritz, comedy, uh, and also at the end there's going to be a DJ set. So there's going to be dancing. Alright, what more would you want to see Jorge M. Sanchez dance around here? I will dance if everybody shows up. And that is a promise I will keep to my listeners. Please uh, follow the JMS Podcast on Facebook, on Twitter, and Instagram. And uh, stay, stay awesome people, stay awesome. 
because this next segment, it's going to be awesome. Here is Miranda Caravello on the brand new segment of Exhibit This. and welcome back to another segment of Exhibit This with Miranda Caravallo. And I'm Miranda Caravallo. Alright Miranda, where did you go visit lately? Okay, so I've seen, it has been a very rough last month or so for yours truly. I got fired from my job. I'm not going to say the restaurant because it's, it's uh, I'm just not going to do that. Okay. Uh, I, I put the, I'm not going to, moving on. Um, well, but you're an artist. You're, you're an art critic. Who who needs a, a day job when, when you're one with the, with the culture? Or hey, you're just adding to the emails I'm going to write you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I uh, when I'm not working, everything else seems to kind of fall to shit. As soon yeah. as I stop feeling productive, I can't write. I can't. I just sort of uh, get high and watch Netflix. And uh, I started a habit where I would do edibles and wander around the city like a lunatic. Uh-huh. Play. I went to AFK a lot and, and played Mario Party by myself. Oh, you're in the depths of it. Yeah, no, I was in the depths. But um, I saw the exhibit that I saw today to kill time after I uh, had a lot of time to kill was uh, at the ICA, and it was Overture, the Art of Steve French. Now, the ICA stands for the Institute of Contemporary Art. Art. Yeah. Uh, which is a, a small gallery in downtown San Jose. It's a uh, small free gallery, uh, usually hosting one to two exhibits at a time every few months. And before you came tonight, I never even heard of it. Oh, I've I've gone there a few times. I mean, as, as, a, as a young hipster, the idea of a free gallery was very appealing to me. That's where they get you. Yeah, I'd get a cup of coffee at uh, Frascati and then go to, the, go to the Institute of Contemporary Art. And it's just down the street from Makla, right? Uh, yeah, it is. It's it's near the Quilt Museum. Yeah, actually, they're all lined up together. Yeah. Mark just, the Quilt Museum and then the ICA. Yeah, you just keep going. She's, uh-huh. uh, and it was very... I think the common thread between all the exhibits I saw is that they they were things that you you felt as much as you saw. Um, and I'm not sure if that was just me. Actually, I'm, I'm not going to be like, maybe that's just me, because then that's the entirety of criticism, and I, everything I say would be nonsense. Um... Steve French was a professor at San Jose State who died about four years ago. Uh, and this was, he, he's not uh, um, an immensely famous man, uh, but they did this exhibit of his work, everything from his, his like more known pieces to his, his uh, little known MFA work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all very, it's like, it reminds me of the type of abstract art I talked about on my first segment here. But in with more depth, like his his work plays with texture and it it pops out at you, like it it, it goes in multiple pieces. It, it's like a mix mixture between. He has his prints, but I was very struck by his sort of um, framed diorama esque paintings or works that, uh, to put it simply, I wanted to touch it. I really wanted to touch. It's like you stu- you you ever see something and you just want to touch it. Like, has a very interesting texture to it? Yeah, it was very interesting. Textures jutting out, sh- uh, shapes that jutted out, uh, paintings that were made with, like, several layers, like like um, splatter paint that was then etched off into different shapes. Mm-hmm. 
it, it was just, it would, would be great to touch. <laughs> and I was, um, it, it's, it's like a fairly small exhibit, but it goes, half of it is the works of Steve French and the other half is the work of other artists that uh, were influenced by him, which was very, very lovely. Um, but he had this one room that had, his, his work was uh, very, is very tied with music and um, poetry. And he had a work, uh, uh, several pieces, called his uh, Winter Song series, based off uh, the German poet. And they were these fragments, I'm going to show them to you because I took a picture of them. Um, where, where are they, where are they, where are they, there they are. They were these, um, they were all based on the concept of winter, and there were these, these, these multiple painted squares showing different textures and a box with, with actual, like, wooden elements to it, like twigs from off the ground, and you look at it and you, you, you see only fragments, but your brain can put it together into an entire atmosphere. Well, it's interesting. It's like, there's like, like big canvases, small canvases, and they're like a pat, like a, like almost like a puzzle. Yeah, exactly. Put together. Yeah. And they got like twigs sticking out, which kind of like, so it's kind of like a, not 3D, but, um. It is, it's, it's depth. It's, it's 3D. Right, but what I'm saying is... It's like a pop-up book. Right. Yeah, perfect. That's a perfect way to put it. Yeah. And wow, that's that's interesting. And I had the most interesting experience while I was standing in this room, surrounded by, it's about like uh, nine, nine pieces. Uh, They're fairly small. Um, But I I was looking at them and I had the thought in my head that was like, I would like to have this. I would like to, like, be able to hang this in my room or in my kitchen or something. And I've never had that about a piece of art in a museum before. Mm. It has never felt, because art for me has always felt like another plane. Like not, it's like an experience as opposed to something that I would be able to physically pick up and hold. So ownership was not a thing for you when it came to art. It was more of a appreciating the experience of what, of seeing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I never had the concept where I was like, I could buy this if I wanted to. Um, but this was the first one where it was so accessible that I felt like I could like I could see myself having this. Obviously, I I, <laughs> I even looked at the prices because I was like, oh, are they for sale? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but they're like thousands of dollars. Uh-huh, of that course. is not within my budget. <laughs> but it, the whole thing brought me to a point that it's really what I would like to talk to you about: uh, the concept of legacy. Uh, what someone leaves behind. Long Do you ever after think death. about your legacy, Jorge? All the time. All the time. Especially you. Uh, recently, we lost the Bowie and we lost uh, Leonard Cohen. And both of those uh, musicians kind of were working on their albums, right? Their their last albums that they knew they were gonna leave behind soon after. Uh, but yeah, I think about Lexi. Uh, if anything, uh, I had a, my previous episode with Victor Cruz Perez. I think I kind of we kind of were talking about that. Um, but yeah, do you think about legacy? No, end of podcast. Uh, yeah, of course. Well, thank you and, for coming. <laughs> I mean, I'm 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 20 now. I've been thinking about my legacy and feeling eons older than how I actually am. Which is funny because a it, while I'm 27. It's pretty absurd for a 27 to be like, yeah, I think about my legacy. Cause yeah, I haven't really done shit. But I remember I remember having the feeling of it was in my senior year economics class and the uh, teacher, Dr. Caldi. Uh, yeah, Caldi, uh, who was a lovely man and completely insane, but in the best way. Uh, he started asking us what we planned to do after high school. 
and a lot of people were saying like, oh, I want to be a nurse, or I want to um, work at my dad's farm, or I want to help run this business. And I was looking around, and I realized that I was the only one in that room with aspirations of like being a known playwright. And, you know, when you're a kid, the, like, your future is always like, I'm going to be a fireman, I'm going to be an astronaut, I'm going to be a superhero. And then suddenly, for most people, that feeling kind of fades away. But then there's people like me and I imagine you, that that just stays. Does that, does that ever trip you out? It does. It is. I remember we had a similar project in high school. We had to map out um, what we wanted to do. And I was the only one in my class who did not put in having a family. <laughs> And all I put in was to be a filmmaker. How isn't that? So it's it's almost a sour feeling. Like 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 you blink and suddenly you look around and you realize you're the only one in this like waking dream state. Uh huh. And you felt like uh, Steve French's work. Well, because the the thing with Steve French is that he was he was a professor. He was he was a, a strong strong supporter of the arts. He supported ICA and San Jose Opera and 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 uh, the other MoMA. Uh, but I was reading about his life, and like later in life, he got married and helped his wife tend their garden, and that was his life. He actually had a series of paintings um, based on what the shapes he saw in his garden that were very, very nice. His paintings were very, I don't, they were very lovely. His sculptures are what really hit me, and that that's what brings... <coughs> I'm so sorry. Oh. I just coughed on a podcast. Oh. <coughs> Dear JMS Here podcast. come the more emails. How um, dare you cough? <laughs> how dare you How dare cough? you try to breathe? If you cared about me, you wouldn't have things in your throat. Um, <laughs> it's It started... It, this exhibit really made me realize, and uh, it, had, it had a quote based on one of his poems. Because this guy, I, I related to this guy a lot. He does a lot of things. He wasn't just painting. He was doing, like, like etchings and and, and, and sculpture work and, and like, so crazy was, wood was stuff. well-rounded. Yeah, and, and, this guy. I, and all these I always, artistic crafts. I always tell people I want to have, if I ever get a Wikipedia page about me, I want it to be, like, the Wikipedia page for David Lynch. If you ever look him up on Wikipedia, it says he's, he's a filmmaker... Writer, musician, poet, sculptor. Well, you know it's Wikipedia. Put that yourself. You think? You, God damn it! <laughs> I'm just saying you could really do it. But this guy—it's plausible. Has, that's, all guy, that's what I'm trying to tell you. But go ahead. Yeah, his poetry. The, he wrote. There's a there's a poem that's kind of the center of overture that really like stirred up a lot of stuff in me. And this is what it is. It's it's describing his practice. It is a question not of cognition, but of recognition. It is a question not of appreciation, but of apprehension. It is a question not of insight, but of sight. It is a question. What do you think about that? I totally agree with him. I, 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 loved, the, I loved the line talking about how it's not about insight, it's about sight. Do yeah. you know how many years I've wasted obsessing over my my insight and my philosophy and the things I can analyze. Mm -hmm. That is nothing. Or it's something, but it's it's not much compared to just being able to look at something like, you know, see uh, un pipe? Sometimes, what? say pipe. I see a pipe. Uh, the, the painting, this is not... 
<laughs> I, I made an absurdist painting joke. Art critic, cred. Yeah, well, way, way over my head. There's yeah. an absurdist painting of a pipe, and it says the words "CC Naum Pipe" at the bottom, which means this is not a pipe. And the old joke is like, but it is a pipe, but it's also a painting, so it's not a pipe. Sometimes it's a pipe. Okay, I see. So it's like a meta thing. And that's I don't know. That's that's what my focus is now. I'm not like I I'm not nearly as ambitious as I was before. Like three breakdowns ago. You know, and I want to feel. <laughs> hey, you got me excited for this gallery exhibit now. It's real. It's it, really good. It, it really, really hit a nerve with you, huh? It, yeah. In both a good way and an okay way. <laughs> no, it was. It was. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I liked the idea of like. I don't know. I, I feel like that was something I can aspire to be. Like maybe I won't win a Tony, but you know, if if someplace down here. In my heart, you got my Tony. Oh, I think the real Tony is our friendship, Jorge. <laughs> That's all that matters. Oh, my God. Uh, I can hear our listeners throwing up right now. All right. Uh, but uh, was there any common motifs with uh, with this guy's work? Uh, it's it's sort of abstract. It's very geometric. Uh, lots of lots of depth and lots of layers. Uh, that's I'm, I don't want to say much else, mm-hmm. but it's it's real good. All right. Uh, so, um, how long is this gallery happening till? It is uh, from November twelfth to February fourth of next year. So from November twelfth to February fourth, it is at the uh, uh, what's the gallery called again? I- uh, ISA. The, the yeah, the Institute of Contemporary Art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if uh, any wealthy ladies out there want to buy me a piece from his uh, Winter Song series, I'll marry you just straight up. Oh wow! Yeah, I don't even care. <laughs> I will care about you. And the address is 560 South First Street in San Jose, California. Zip code is 95113. And it looks like the hours are Tuesday through Friday from 10 to 5. Saturday through Sunday from 12 to 5. And uh, first Fridays of the month, they'll be open from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. All right, but thank you for coming. Thank you, Jorge. Next up is our featured guest this week. It is musician Zach Bateman. Although predominantly on the East Bay, I'm sure you've seen this guy all over the Bay Area. He is uh, a great person. He's awesome. I can't say nothing but great things about him. I had a great chat with him. Although I gotta admit, it got a little awkward in the beginning. You're about to find out why. But other than that, it's been a great discussion regarding music and about his documentary film, Underground Under Review, about the ghost ship fire that happened in Oakland. The one year anniversary is coming up. And uh, I must say that it was a very fascinating uh, talk. Uh, I, there was a lot I had to digest from it, a lot to a lot of insights, and uh, I'm sure y- you will all um, will agree with me. Will concur. Man, I'm using big words. Will concur. I'm gonna feature a song from Zach Bateman. It is uh, from his latest album of uh, Zach Bateman and the Coal Mines. It is uh, it is available to download on zachbateman.bandcamp.com. The song is called Bourbon and Bones. I'm really digging the song, and uh, I highly recommend you guys uh, go ahead and go out there and buy it. Uh, Zach Bateman and the Coal Mines, and the album is called More Funerals Than Weddings. And uh, yeah, let's go talk to Zach Bateman. Let's go see what's up. Mm-hmm. 
Zach Bateman. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yeah, yeah, Zach Bateman. Bateman? Yeah. You don't remember me, do you? No, I remember you. you I, do. I booked you at XOXO, and um, I think we've done other shit together, too. Like, we've, we've, we've definitely played a lot of the same stuff, but I definitely remember XO. Like... Is that... No... I don't remember EXO. EXO. EXO was the one on the corner of, I think, like, 2nd and Broadway, and it used to be uh, the Metro, um, and it was... Not, not to make it awkward, but that's definitely not me. We no, met, no, we, no, we, no. We've yeah. met at Mutiny Radio. Yeah, yeah, and we've done that, too. No, we, we've, we've, right. done, we've done a few a few different things together. No, it was yeah. that one. No, I... So, so there was the one at Mutiny, which was the... Uh, that was the Laferazzi thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the one where you had to tell our celebrity stories. Yeah, yeah. See that one? I think you. Were, I get this a lot from a lot of like Northern Bay Area comedians. They confuse me with like a couple other comedians up there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, there's like a an Andy Garcia. No, I wasn't there. Wasn't I? I but every time I go anyway. up there, every time I go up there, they're like, "Hey, you look like so and so. You're so and so." It's like, yeah. here I am trying to be a, a unique <laughs> person. It's like, no. Well, that's that's why I dress flashy and wear makeup. So people are like, "Oh, that's the big guy that wears makeup and dresses crazy." I try to take <laughs> notes. I try to do that myself. Yeah. And uh, and you said you last night you played at the Ivy Room, correct? Yeah, yeah. We we just did a set at the Ivy Room with uh, the Caitlin Glennon band and uh, Minor Burned Minor Birds, who's a friend of uh, who's a friend of mine. Uh, it was a really cool show. A lot of people came out, and you know. Ivy Room's a great spot. How long has the uh, Zach Bateman and the Coal Mines been happening? Well, it's funny. So, Coal Mines actually isn't uh, much of a thing anymore because uh, we kind of disbanded, and and now it's mainly just Zach Bateman. Zach Bateman. Yeah. So, um, but I do have a band behind me. It's just like, I don't know. I felt like I would get rid of the, the name and the Coal Mines because I felt like that band was the Coal Mines, you know? So, uh, but now we have all different players and it's, uh, it's pretty fun. It's, uh, but the whole thing, me doing music under that kind of persona and, um, I guess under just my name, uh, it's been about four years now. Oh wow. So it's yeah. been a while. Yeah. 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 It Has it like... been four years? Cause when I met you, you told me you're, you're in the coal mines. God, yeah. My, my memories. Well, that, that was two years ago and then it had already been because uh, we've we've gone through a bunch of different chains. A bunch of musicians have come and gone. Well, it's part so, of the music process, right? Yeah, you, yeah. you have to evolve. Yeah, and there's there's been probably like four renditions of the band already. But yeah, yeah I think we started in twenty, maybe late twenty thirteen, early twenty fourteen. Mm. So uh, three ish, three to four years. I was really impressed. I was listening to your music. I was really impressed. You guys kind of had that swampy kind of bluesy stuff. Oh happening. yeah, yeah. Thanks. Even your yeah. whole aesthetic. You got, got got that New Orleans troubadour kind of. Oh yeah, yeah. Kind I, of I, thing I going on. <laughs> I, was, I was really surprised because you don't see much young cats our generation doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these days a lot of people have resorted to like uh, a lot of uh, electronic like indie stuff. Yeah. And, well, we actually we've become kind of a blend of those because uh, now we we do have some electronics, but we still keep it like pretty swampy and bluesy like we'll still do tom waits covers we'll still you know do like screaming jay hawkins stuff but like you know um i after the band had switched over i kind of um 
went back to my old roots, which was a lot of my old influences were things like Nine Inch Nails and Ministry and stuff like that. So we, we kind of tried to blend it all together. So now if you go see us live, it's this mixture of like it's swampy bluesy stuff, but you could also dance to it, you know? So it's, it's a, it's you can a still dance thing. to swampy bluesy stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but a different kind of dance, you know? Oh. But yeah. Yeah. What came first? Was it music or comedy? Uh, definitely music. Uh, and I've been playing music since I was like maybe 13 or 14. 13 or 14. Wow. Um, Young age. Yeah. Yeah. Did it start um, from like school or something? No, it, it just started. Well, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be an actor and acting came first then. Yeah. Above acting, all. acting came before anything else. And I had done a couple of little things. I'd done some commercials for, you know, uh, this or that, or I had done, uh, like some, some, like PSA stuff on uh, like these little animation websites because uh, my stepdad was an animator. So did he work for like a local animator like Pixar or something? Yeah, no, he actually worked for uh, at the time it was uh, Wild Brain, and Wild Brain did if you if you remember any of those like the the Coca Cola commercials where the mom has superpowers and you know she turns into this like flame like superhero. Um, or like the Willy Wonka, uh, you know, candy commercials, like the nerds rope and all, all that stuff, you know? Um, but they had done commercials and they had a bunch of online web series, uh, content. So I acted in a bunch of those things. Um, and I'm assuming your father was very supportive since uh, he, he was yeah, already yeah. in that field. Yeah. Yeah. My, my stepdad's always been supportive. My mom's always been supportive. She's, she's actually been a member of my band for like, you know, since like probably like four or five years now, uh, for any musical project that I have. Um, and cause she's a musician too. And she kind of, you know, got me into music and everything. But I think the switch over was, uh, I was, I was definitely a bigger kid. Um, when, when I was, when I was little, when I was like nine or 10, you know, and, um, there was, a bunch of stuff that had happened in like my family and things. And I don't know, there was just this moment where I came to my mom and I was like, Hey, I want to, I might want to sing something. And she sat me down, uh, by the piano and she started like, you know, um, teaching me how to sing uh, desperado by the Eagles. And so from that, you know, that's a pretty deep song for, for a 13 year old. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, is uh, like, cause she she raised me on a bunch of different stuff though, and it's uh, it's true. Like my my first the first band that I was ever into was actually Nine Inch Nails, cause of my mom. Hmm. So you know, I was born nineteen eighty eight. Um, Pretty Hate Machine by Nine Inch Nails came out in nineteen eighty nine, and my parents were like super goth in the 80s and 90s so do you ever see pictures of the oh, goth days oh yeah totally and <laughs> and they still kind of rep a lot of the same vibes you know like uh-huh. um so you know with that like the, the the first songs i remember like singing to myself or enjoying were like nine inch nails or like you know depeche mode or something like that but there was another side to my mom which was very you know Ella Fitzgerald and you know uh, Etta James and like 
you know, just old classic stuff. So it was all across the board as far as the influences went. Was she a working musician at the time? Uh, she would play in bands and she would be writing her own music, but she was working at BART, I think, uh, at the time. And then she ended up leaving BART and uh, being a bouncer for uh, about a year at a place called The End Up in, in San Francisco. Your mother, a bouncer. Yeah. She I'm was, sure she told you stories. Well, she she actually started off as a bouncer, and after the first two months, she became head of security. I mean, and, I, I think innately, you're already afraid of, of your mom. Oh, yeah, yeah I, yeah. I can only imagine this amplified that fear. Oh, yeah. Knowing yeah. that your mom could most likely, like, definitely kick your ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's got, like, um, just as many, if not more, tattoos than me and shit. So, you know, like, my mom's pretty badass. Yeah. <laughs> So you're like, all right, you're done with the acting, and you find music as a, a, a way to express yourself. Yeah, well, I I think as a kid, I, I was doing some acting stuff, but I never, like, seriously, like, pursued it. Um, and it had always been something in the back of, you know, uh, my mind. You know, I'd film little short films with, like, my older brother and stuff, who's actually a filmmaker now. Um, but, yeah, I definitely, I put acting on the back burner and I ended up focusing more on music because uh, I don't know something just like something just hit me I think like right before or right before high school or maybe freshman year and I was just like fuck I gotta I gotta start playing music like I gotta get into this and I think it was you know a couple of my friends were really into Misfits and and, and Metallica and it was just like we started geeking out about you know hmm. oh like oh i got this album oh shit well i got this album and together we had the the full discography of those bands and everything and you know so i i remember going to my uncle who was a who's he's always been a music producer and he's he's working for like i mean he's worked for like britney spears and like just oh, wow. everybody all across the board. So you had an in in kind both of, in both film and, and music. Kind of. I mean, in a, in a way, uh, you know, like it's one of these things. Like my brother is pretty like well known as far as his films go in New York, mm-hmm. and my uncle is well known for his music, but in Turkey. So there's like in Turkey. Yeah, he he works for like some Turkish band and like they're like fucking huge out there. Do and you have Turkish roots yourself? No, no, I'm actually Filipino and Iranian, uh, and uh, among like um billion other things. But like right. those are those are the main two. It's so funny that your uncle ended up in Turkey. That's... No, he his just just his music blew up out there. So it's it's one of those things where he's like, oh yeah, I'm famous in Turkey, but. Nobody knows who the fuck I am out here. It's kind of like that Sixto Rodriguez uh, story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the guy that, that, you know, he two albums, nothing came out of it here in the States. But in South Africa, he's such a big deal. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's so funny. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so you're in high school, you're you're songwriting. How was your songwriting like at the time? It was so... The first song I ever wrote was actually a song called Skeleton Monkey. And it was just, that was the song. It's just the word skeleton monkey over and over again. The riff sounded like the words. I mean, I knew. It was like a mantra? Yeah, I knew like a couple of power chords. uh, And I listened to like 
I, I think around the time I actually started playing an instrument was when I was getting like really into like punk shit and um, you know it was just like just very simple like everything every song was like four chords and you know it's just I don't know whatever I thought was cool at the time you know what's wrong whatever with four chords man well no I mean it's funny because like- I mean I've kind of carried that into my music now because if you actually look at if you actually listen to any of my songs I mean most of it's like there's not a lot of changes like most of it's the same shit over and over again there's just there's just things built around it you know yeah yeah and uh and uh what kind of places were you playing at um i started playing probably like when i was like probably a little bit later like 14 or 15 um and um at first it was just little things like my mom would throw a fun fundraiser for some you know some kind of benefit or some non-profit organization um, and I would play that, um, and it would be like at her job, uh, not a, as a bouncer, but at her job as, um, she was working at club sport in Pleasanton for a while. So I was, you know, we put on like a little fundraiser there, like places like Ashkenaz and stuff in Berkeley. And it was just like little, little tiny venues, maybe some house parties here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it got like a little more serious when I was like 16, 17 started like playing places like you know the the little more well-known you know like bottom of the hill and stuff like that yeah and how was that transitioning where we're kind of going to start building up stage performance well it was it was trippy because i think because of wanting to be an actor for so long like some of it came naturally but then you know i would listen to a lot of people that would have critique and be like oh yeah you look kind of awkward up there and <laughs> You know, I think I actually I've had those critiques. Myself. Yeah. I also play music. Oh, okay, yeah. nice, nice. But um, it's funny that you mentioned that connection with acting because uh, I heard a, a funny quote the other day about how Mick Jagger. Yeah. He he's not a singer. He just acts like one. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I'm like yeah. that totally makes sense. And, yeah. that, and in rock and roll and punk, that that makes all the difference. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you look at like Henry Rollins and you listen to Black Flag and you're like, this this guy's not not singing but like i'm feeling what the fuck he's he's yelling at me you know right. like um but yeah i i think i do actually owe this to my brother is he saw me perform a couple of times and that year for my birthday he got me like five dvds of live concert uh footage and it one was one was queen live at montreal oh, wow. um the other one was uh kiss of course, and um, there was S and M, uh, the the one the album that Metallica did with the the San Francisco Symphony, and there was one more. What was it? Uh, might have actually been another Queen. Like might have been Queen at Wembley. But he, he gave me he gave me those DVDs, and he was like, "Here, study this, and you know, do whatever it is you do to like." you know like just let those that stage presence soak in you know and it was like just watching those religiously and then you know um i think right around the time uh green day had just come out with american idiot so that was like the biggest thing in the world you know and I, i went and i saw them and you know just certain things that help and stuck with you and 
you're like, oh shit, I gotta do that. I gotta be like that. I gotta, I gotta not be like, I gotta not be just me on stage. I have to be like an entity. Right. You know, you gotta put on a mask. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes literally. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You know, you gotta put a little paint. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. That's, that's, and how was the landscape in the music scene when you're, you're getting into it? Because um, yeah. you, you primarily perform in the East Bay, right? Yeah, yeah, mainly, yeah. And, and, and right now, considering you know a lot of shit that's happening in San Francisco, a lot of artists are heading towards the East Bay. Yeah, yeah. Here in San Jose, we're seeing uh, some of that migration ourselves. Yeah. So I could imagine it's popping up there. San Jose, I feel like I feel like it's really popping with the comedy too. Like it's it's, it's growing it's Slow, slowly, but it's getting there. Yeah. But because um, I'm always seeing I'm always seeing stuff in the comedy networks like you know yeah. oh come out to San Jose I'm like oh shit when the fuck did this happen like you know <laughs> not too um, long ago man yeah yeah but um no I mean it's kind of, it's kind of the same deal I mean it's it's almost the opposite for me just personally like when I think about growing up and where the music scene was and it was like every corner there was a venue and like everybody had a fucking punk band and you would go to like you know four shows a night or something and like you know i mean it was just like there was this happening this is like 2003 2004 you know and there's just this like this whole scene that was you know great and then venues started kind of getting shut down or like you know i don't know it just a lot of it just kind of fizzled out mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean around the time that i was starting to play was like i was going to like i music cast or like burnt ramen all the time to to see like you know some of my favorite bands play and you know these were kind of smaller clubs but you know yeah i mean uh yeah like phenomenots and aquabats and shit like Played, like real big fish played at um iMusicast one time and it was you know it was it was awesome hmm. uh and then just the local scene was great too so yeah i mean i definitely have a lot of fondness for for that i i feel like the scene's definitely changed um how so i mean there's some good things like i feel like people are a little more open now like whereas so i was in a hip-hop group for probably like three four years were you a rapper? Yeah, yeah. I was I was a rapper and producer. <laughs> and it was I was we were called Spirits in the Basement and I was doing this from two thousand eight to two thousand eleven. And it was right around that time that Hyphy had just like had just died, you know, like yeah. and and you know No longer going dumb. Yeah, and, and the thing was what Hyphy did was even though I respect it now and I'm like, oh I kinda miss that. But what it did for hip hop artists in the Bay for a little while was it really fucked up chances to play clubs, because like a lot of the time it was like, oh well, we can't, you know, we don't we don't want any shootings or we don't want people getting crazy here and this and that. So we we dealt with a lot of that as a as a hip hop group, especially because it was me, a Vietnamese kid, and like four black dudes with dreads. Uh-huh. So when they would see us, they would be like, oh. Yeah, you're like one of those hyphy types, and it's like, no, we were, all of us were influenced by like the Pixies and shit, and like, so you know, I mean, right. it was a very weird <laughs> combination of things, but um, yeah, so there's there's these, I feel like now we're in a space where everybody is kind of open to like whatever the fuck you're playing, and that's great, that's awesome, like you know, people 
more often than not now, you'll see like a hip hop group open for like a blues group or something like that. You know, like everybody's kind of getting along musically, but I definitely, the negative side is I definitely see like less places for artists to perform and less, uh, I don't know. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's a mixture of things. I mean, there's definitely, you know, I mean, we're in the Bay, so that the tech situation is, right. you know, all that shit. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of venues, there's a mixture of, like, owners kind of, like, it's, to some degree, a lot of venue owners are, you know, kind of aren't handling their shit. But then on other degrees, it's like, oh, we, we're we going to tear this down. Like the spot that I booked at, XOXO, got torn down, and now it's becoming, you know, uh, housing. It's becoming condos, you know, downtown Oakland, where they're going to jack it up to, like, you know, a, you know, three grand for a 200-square-foot room, you know? So essentially gentrification. Yeah, yeah. Play, played a part in having developers take out establishments yeah yeah and replace them with you know not really entertainment venues yeah exactly yeah and it kind of sucks and i mean that's definitely something that we actually touch on in in the the film uh that i just put out um and uh you know to watch that happen to this it's like oh you know like this place isn't here anymore this place isn't here anymore and you know it's yeah it's unfortunate but Mm -hmm. i mean I, i feel like there's an underground scene in the bay as a whole that will find a way to survive there is a, a certain do-it-yourself scene happening for sure yeah yeah um and i'm seeing it here in san jose as well because we're, we're having similar problems you know we're we're at the heart of the silicon valley yeah so yeah, we're, totally we're, we're, we're definitely seeing the, the front of, of it yeah but I, i've always felt you know the the biggest backbone to the music industry locally it would be the food industry i, I think a, a lot of these venues yeah. Are at you know bars or are at certain restaurants at yeah, stages yeah. and so on. So I think, I think it's it, it's important to also you know take a look at that. Yeah, yeah, and see how how much of a correlation of getting rid of local mom and pop restaurants yeah. for like franchise restaurants. Yeah, kind of diminishes opportunities for local musicians. To yeah, because 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 nobody's. I mean, nobody's going to be asked to, and nobody's going to want to play an Applebee's. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> like this. Right. But yeah, I totally, I totally feel that. It's just, uh, like right now, I, I feel in San Jose right now, I'm not sure if it's true in the East Bay, but the, the number one popular venue to be performing is a lot of cafes. Yeah. So that's yeah. spawning, spawning a lot of, you know, indie acoustic sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Which I feel gives the unfair advantage to the local punk scene. Yeah. Because you know, they, they got fewer spots to perform. Yeah. And, well, that's the thing with the East Bay, too. And that's um, something that we uh, talk about in, like, in the film and everything is yeah. part of... By the way, I do want to get into the film. I'm just saving it for oh, a little, no, little no, bit Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. But, I, I don't make you feel like, oh, I'm ignoring it and moving on. Oh, no, no, no. It's all good. But I'm, like, I'm bringing it up pretty soon, actually. Yeah, it, it is It is just pertinent to the scene in general. Is like a lot of the time, uh, you know, when people can't find a place, they just they get a fucking generator and it's like, all right, let's play anywhere. Like, you know, let's, you want to go to Mosswood Park? Cool. Let's let's play a show there whoever shows up shows up have some pbr like boom like i mean there's there's all these places that are 
you know, East Bay considers a venue, but it's it's not a venue at all, you know. Uh, it's just people who can't find a place to play, so they're like, fuck it, like, we're gonna make a place to play, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, over in the, in the, um, the Sutro Baths over in SF, um, people go into that cave, and they bring generators, and they play fucking shows until the cops come. And it's like, you know, and sometimes that's that's the band one of the band's like few shows that year. You know, so <laughs> Right. When did comedy come in? Comedy comedy came in uh way later. Uh I was in so I've been in like a million different groups, right? And I was in this like kind of pop punky grunge group where I was playing bass for it and uh you know, my lead singer was, was trying to sound like you know nirvana and you know he's like we're gonna change the world bro but like you know never actually put in any of the footwork to do so uh and like he's like why are only three people coming to the show and it's like dude because like we're not promoting shit like that's yeah that's not how it goes pretty Um, common yeah and uh so i quit that and i found myself in this still this is before zach bateman the you know musical lag before i started pretty much doing uh the kind of stuff i've been doing the past four years but i was at this standstill where i wasn't performing because i wasn't in that band and i hadn't started my own solo stuff yet um and comedy was something i had written so much material from when i was like 17 just watching like you know watching everybody getting into bill hicks getting into george carlin getting into like you know, uh, I was even like, I was a huge fan of Henry Rollins and how he wasn't exactly a comedian, but he would tell stories and those stories would in turn uh, emit laughter. Become you know? bits. Yeah. And, and so like I was watching all these people and, you know, of course he had, you know, Eddie Murphy and shit like that. I was, you know, paying attention. And I think, I think right around that time Chappelle's show was, was a thing and, so I had I had stuff written and I just let it sit because I never had the balls to get up on stage and not have a band behind me you know and then when I was at this standstill between bands and I had nothing to do I was like fuck I gotta perform what am I gonna do and I went back and I revisited all this comedy and I think I was like I was like 21 22 um, and I revisited all this comedy stuff that I had written and I was just like, Oh shit. Okay. So that doesn't make sense. Let's fix that and turn that into a bit. And I, you know, uh, worked out maybe a 20 minute set. Oh Jesus. Um, well, yeah. And it, cause it was all shit to, that just accumulated 20 over like minutes over that, years yeah. and nobody, nobody told me, nobody was like, you know, Oh yeah. You know, uh, you know, get a tight 10, get a tight five, you know, like get, Hey, if you, you know, come in with a tight twenty off the bat. More well, power uh, to you. Definitely, definitely not a tight twenty. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But like, so, so I did a, I did an. Um, the first show was an open mic. Where? At? Um, it was at uh, Patty's over in Fremont. Uh, it was, it was the cafe. Patty's. And Molly Sokum, uh used to run it. Uh, used to run that specific open mic. Uh, it was right next to a Filipino joint too, so that was that was cool for me. But um, and my hip hop group would always play there, but and I would see people doing comedy, and I would be like, man, I wish I could do that. Like I'd want to do that someday. So I told Molly, 
I was like, hey, um, so, like, you got any openings? Because I'm really interested in the comedy thing now. She's like, yeah, dude, like, come up and just do whatever. And I was like, okay, cool. And I was the last act on the on the bill. And to be the last act on the bill on your first show is like, you know. Uh, and she just let me go on. She let me go on for, like, 15 fucking minutes. And, like, I afterwards, after I did it, it was exhilarating because I got some laughs. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of stuff where I was like, oh, yeah, that was probably terrible. There was crickets there, like, you know. and Popped your comedy cherry. Yeah, and I looked back, and I was like, oh, for 15 minutes, like, first show, that's, I mean, that's way more laughs than, like, some other shows that I've gotten, so that's not terrible. Um, and the second show was... So I just kind of hurled myself in into this because I was like, okay, if I'm going to do comedy, I'm going to do comedy. And the second show was uh, Jamie DeWolf had me do Tourette's Without Regrets. Oh, it's a crazy show. And um, Yeah, I went there once. Oh, yeah. my God. And I, well, I had known, a lot of production. I had known him since I was like 16, sneaking into the Metro to go see Tourette's and everything. And... He was like, yeah, we'll totally put you on. You're doing comedy now? And I fucking bombed in front of <laughs> hundreds like of 700 people. people <laughs> and like maybe maybe 30 of them were laughing. Oh, and no. like, you know. The silence is so terrifying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, but after that, I just kept doing it. And I was really into it for like a couple of years where that was all I was doing before I started another, another musical project. So I was I was doing the brainwash open mics and I was doing like you know uh, after brainwash we'd go to amnesia or we'd go to wherever the fuck was having whatever and then you know uh, Stroy had me do um, hella funny a couple of times when it was back at Stageworks. So and, how would you best describe this transitioning from tr- being a performer with music now being a performer with comedy? It was it was it was pretty trippy because you're you're like you're you're naked when you're doing comedy you're and i feel like everybody should do it once it's just like two things to make you a better human being one is do comedy and the other is uh weight tables yeah you know they both will humble you yeah yeah exactly (laughs) and you know because some people think they're the funniest shit at the party and their friends are like oh yeah you should be a fucking comedian dude but a lot of the time when you get that dude on stage he sucks like he doesn't have it you know um but so that was a weird thing to kind of process it was like okay i have nothing back here and it's just me and everybody's waiting for me to talk and since this is a comedy show and i haven't established myself as a storyteller or anything like that they're expecting to laugh and if they don't laugh then that's a blow to your self-esteem, you know? And so it's like all these factors that you don't you don't got to worry about with music. I mean, with music, you're like, you fuck up a, a note or something like that. It's like, okay, yeah, everybody does that. But, I mean, you might have a band behind you, or at least you, you could just play something else on guitar. You know, there's plenty of ways to go about it. But if you're bombing as a comic, you're bombing, and it's apparent, you know? Um, so, so I'm the opposite, man. I get more nervous performing music than comedy. Comedy, I'm easy yeah. to put myself out there. Mm-hmm. But in music, I feel like I'm being judged on a different level. Yeah. Maybe on talent. <laughs> so that really puts me on edge. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, you know, it's 
it's funny too because I, I got to a certain point with comedy where it was like I stopped doing open mics and I stopped doing um, like you know the showcases because and you know I know everybody has to pay their dues I know everybody has to you know like uh, go through the shit and I went through that shit for two years but after two years I was like I'm not gonna wait through 30 other comedians to get three minutes in a place that's 45 minutes away from me and I gotta take Bart home I'm not gonna do that it burns I'm, you out man it definitely yeah. does and I'm like I'm just gonna book my own shows and I'm gonna give myself a 20 minute set and I'm gonna book other comedians that want like 10 15 minute sets like you know, I'm gonna pay my fucking comedians when they come and they play. Yeah. You know, like stuff. once you once oh, you start producing your own shows, that's a whole different learning curve. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. And I've well, I've been doing that since I was like 17 or 18, just from helping out my mom. And so the idea of like how to work a show and how to make sure everything's like you know provide backlines and this and that and like a lot of my shows, you know, we we'll have like catering in the back or like you know I'll, I always make sure. If I'm booking a show and somebody walks in the door that's performing, I'm greeting them first with a drink ticket because I know that's what they need to be on fucking stage. It's like, you know, um, and it's not an awkward thing where people are like, hey, so what's up with the drink ticket? There's none of that. It's just walking. Here you go. You know, and people get paid at the end of the night. But like, so I, I kind of got done with the whole, the herd thing that, that happens. Like you're the... When when you're doing open mics, you're you're this this herd of people that are just like waiting for their turn, and it sucks. It sucks so bad. Yeah. But I mean, it's definitely worth it in the end because I see people that I know, like you know, like people just blowing up from doing it like constantly. And if it was, if comedy was my first, you know, passion, then I would probably be getting back out there and you know, subjecting myself to. I hear you, man. The humility. I hear you. Like, when I go to SF, I went to the punchline, and just the way there were so many comics are waiting yeah. for their chance. Some people wait there for years. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm too impulsive. Yeah. And, and and I think it's not with the digital age, not with the social media age. I think that definitely bended the rules and expedited, yeah. potentially, uh, you know, avenues of success. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where you have more means of putting yourself out there now. Yeah, not, not, totally. Not just relying on bookers and, and so on. Yeah, and it, I mean, it goes back to the thing of places to play where, like, some of the best comedy shows I've been to, been at a fucking house, like, you know, been at a a library, like, you it, know. That's a different intimate feel for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that, I, I think something that's that's great is that, you know, through the through the subjecting to to all the you know all that stuff, I mean, people do kind of start finding out about you. They're like, oh, this guy was at this open mic. This guy was at this open mic, and that was that was cool for me uh, for a bit. And you know, I went out to New York and you know did like a bunch of you know random open mics. Uh, How was that experience? It was it was fun. So uh, one of the funny stories was I. I went out there and I did maybe like five or six open mics. And, um, and this was all during visiting my older brother. Um, and I was out there for two weeks. Um, and he was working most of the week, but we were hanging out on the weekend or like when he got off work. So those whole days I was just, I was out there just roaming around by myself and hitting up whatever fucking comedy club would have me. 
Um, and it was cool and it was just like weird because New York was one of those places where like, you know, you do a set and then somebody's like, Oh yeah, you know, fucking uh Bill Burr's gonna be here tonight and this and that and you're like, I just played the same stage as Bill Burr, like and they're like, Well, yeah, I mean you also just played the same stage as Eddie Murphy, but like nobody gives a shit out there. It's just like it's whatever. That's how it goes. But for you, it's like a surreal experience. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I actually, I actually opened for, I wouldn't say opened for because it was an open mic and he was just, he just showing up. Uh, and to this day, I'm pretty sure it was him, but it might not have been because he had a beard and he was wearing sunglasses for some reason. But I can't mistake the voice of Stephen Wright. Um, ah. And he he was he did this very dry set at the New York Comedy Club. This is like you know four or five years ago, um, and uh, he it was weird because he had he had like fucking dude glasses. He looked like the dude from Big Lebowski, but he was wearing a beanie. So it was almost like he was in a disguise, but like nobody really knew who he was in general. Um, and so he did his set and I did mine and I was really heavy into like impressions at the time. And so I was doing those. And then afterwards he's hanging out at the little bar in the front lobby and I come up to him and I'm like, Hey, Hey man, I'm a, you know, a big fan. I just, just wanted to know what, what, what you thought of my set. Cause I was still at that age where I gave a shit about what famous people thought about my set. And, uh, he's like, uh yeah man I um I don't do impressions so and then he just <laughs> Not shrugged my wheel, and, wheel yeah. blast. and then I was yeah. like uh, all right thanks and that was my whole interaction with him like uh-huh. but it was it was the most Stephen Wright story I could tell like but yeah so I mean there's uh, you know it's it's definitely uh, I do enjoy comedy but now I'm just looking at it from like a a more Booker type perspective as in like okay well I could do that I could do the thing and I could you know wait the this and that for three minutes but I don't have bits I don't have like everything's a story or everything's like a everything's got a a pretty big lead up so for me to do a three minute set I'm gonna get like one kind of joking you know um but you know in that case, for a person like me that doesn't have like quick, quick-witted, you know, bits, I'm just like, oh, fuck it. I'm just gonna book a show and I'm gonna, you know, be the guy, and then other people can be the guy as well, and you know, whatever. What brought <laughs> you? What brought you uh, back to music? Um, it was just. I think it was a mixture of like, you know, I was still doing comedy while I was. I was getting back into the band that I've been working on now. And I think that the thing was I had hit some people up on Facebook and I was like, I want to start playing Tom Waits covers, uh, you know, maybe just for the, the Halloween season, who wants to join me? And a bunch of people hit me up on Facebook. And, uh, cause that was one of my bits when I would do comedy was just doing a Tom Waits impression. And, you know, everybody hit me back and they were like, dude, I fucking love Tom Waits. Like, let's do it. And so we started just by doing Tom Waits covers, and then eventually I was like, "Hey, I got, I got like original music too that we can work on." And then so it, it progressed from there, 
And I was still kind of doing comedy on the side, and I still actually do comedy every once in a while. But now it's it's gone from like you know a a bunch of shows a week to like you know I'll do I'll do either a random open mic or something um, where I know I'll have like ten minutes um, every like you know six months to a year, or I'll you know host a show that I booked. And I'll try out some material in between that time, you know, like just in between bands and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it's really cool to do that. And I always tried to push that with other comedians. Like, if you want to, if you want a really good response, play something that's not a comedy event. Yeah. <laughs> like where people don't expect to laugh, and then if they start laughing, like you got them. Like you're good. Like. You know. That's not uncommon in music. I mean, there were there were bands that took comedians on tour with them. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. And that was that was one thing too. Is I I opened the first time I ever played at Yoshi's before I ever worked there. I opened for um, my friend Terrence Brewer, who's this amazing jazz guitarist. He does like West Montgomery, uh, you know, uh-huh. tribute stuff. But he like he's just he, like crazy fingers. Like he's ridiculous. Um, but he hit me up and he was like, Hey man, like, you know, we're friends and you know, I know you do comedy. He's like, do you want to like, let's do a jazz comedy thing at Yoshi's and make it real old school. Like some Lenny Bruce shit. Like you get up there, you do some impressions, you do like maybe 10, 15 minutes and then I'll get up there and play my set. And that was like, at the time that was the biggest thing I'd ever done as a comedian. And it was just like, it was so dope. And like, it makes sense though. I mean, in the early uh, development of the comedian uh, field, yeah, there's two places you'll find them, like professionals, and that would be either at strip clubs or at jazz clubs. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and so, you know, like a Ranger, uh, Ranger da- Dangerfield, the fuck? <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney yeah. Dangerfield. Yeah. And, and, and others, you know, old school comedians. Like, that yeah. was the place to go to see, because there was no real comedy club. Yeah, yeah. The comedy club was, again, the jazz club or yeah. the strip club. Yeah, and you go back and you watch, you know, the old George Burns stuff or anything like that, and Bob Hope, and it's just like they got the band behind them doing the boom boom, like where that yeah. shit actually came from. And shit, man, you know, one of like, my favorite sets I've had was when I had a band back me up doing oh, comedy. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was a good feeling. And sometimes nice. you know, and you get them into the bit. That was pretty fun. Yeah, it's like that old Mitch Hedberg special where he has the stand up basis, and it's <laughs> yeah. just like it's the coolest shit ever. Like. I think more people need to do that and instead of doing comedic music like you know I mean I love I love satire comedy music but at the same time like if somebody's just talking over a band like you listen to old Tom Waits records like uh, Nighthawks at the Diner and like you don't think he's doing bits at first but he's totally doing he's doing some some bits while that jazz band is playing and you know it's Oh man, it's like one of the coolest things ever. Yeah, sorry, it's just the headphones. It's oh no, no, no worries, recording. no worries. Yeah, I gotta buy new ones. <laughs> cool, man. And you're back at it. You're playing your music. You get originals done. Yeah, you're yeah. recording stuff here and there. Yeah, um, and yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely been like it's funny because so we just put an album out with the former rendition of the band. And we recorded that at uh, Jingle Town Studios, which was uh, Green Day's uh, studio, and uh, it just—they just sold it. 
Um, and we were one of the last bands to ever actually record there. Um, and uh, we got it mastered by John Devato of The Matches, another big like Bay Area band. And um, so we just did that recently. Um, and it's cool. It's on Bandcamp, all that. ZachBateman.Bandcamp.com, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, nice. but um, so so that's cool. And we, you know, that particular EP has these songs that are like five fucking years old that we've recorded three, oh shit, that we've recorded like three times over, uh-huh. you know, and, you know, there's been different, all kinds of different versions of those songs. So eventually I was just like, okay, I'm, I got to put this out. Like it's been about a year uh of working on this ep and it's finally out there so so yeah that's i mean that's cool but yeah i'd like to take this opportunity to segue to your documentary film oh yeah yeah totally uh which what is it the title um it's called underground under review underground under review yeah I wasn't too sure because I saw that on YouTube because you have a trailer on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. But I wasn't sure if that was meant as a working title. I, I don't know if you were still. Yeah, no. Because um, it's a particular title. What does that title mean to you, and why did you feel it was fitting for this kind of documentary, this well, subject? Well, so so the documentary is about the. It's about how the Bay Area scene was affected by the the ghost ship fire last year, the 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 warehouse uh, collective fire. Um, and um, I felt like that that specific title, I don't know, it just kind of hit me because, I mean, the underground scene in the Bay Area is the scene in the Bay, in, in at least in the East Bay, you know, like, there's, like, a whole world uh, that's just like a circus, but it's also like this just crazy, vibrant place, and there's, like, there's, um you know ever since the ghost ship happened most of those places have literally been under review like they've most of the venues most of the warehouse collectives have been um sought out by you know uh you know police or whoever to you know come and shut it down um so i i felt like underground under review is a good title for essentially reviewing and just kind of seeing into the world of what certain people and certain venues and certain uh, artists are going through and have gone through since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what was the starting point when you decided to embark on this documentary? I think it was so. There was there was a point. Uh, so of course when when the ghost ship had happened it really sucked i mean we uh you know my girlfriend uh ashley ghoul uh she you know had some friends that were in it and then a lot of our other friends had friends it was just like this thing that was very close to the community and most uh you know most people that we knew knew people at least um and it was like most of my music career has been playing underground venues. It's been playing places like Burnt Ramen or places like, you know, uh, you know, the, the Satya Yuga collective, you know, stuff like that. And so when it happened, it was, it was a big shock and it, you know, it was terrible and it was devastating. 
but shortly after it happened there was they were talking about an episode of some like i don't know if it was csi or something like that and they were saying oh yeah the next episode of csi or something is going to be a ghost ship uh reference and I was like, what the, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is like, ridiculous. Like, you yeah. found it offensive? Yeah, and I, I felt like, well, if if shit like this is happening, it's only a matter of time before some big, like, douchebag director from some other state comes in and wants to exploit the scene and, you know, really just make the people that were involved and the victims kind of, like, look bad, you know? So my thought process was if I get mine out first at least there's that at least there's something that's actually for the people in the Bay Area made by people from the Bay Area mm-hmm. um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the time when I was promoting this and like putting it out there people were like well who are you like what films have you done what you know why should we trust you and I'm like well you should trust that I'm not going to make anybody look bad or get any place shut down because these are places that I considered home Uh and I was actually born and raised out here and this is my scene so I don't want to fuck it up you know Um, and because I'm also not particularly a filmmaker and I'm a musician at heart so I think that's something that a lot of people who have seen the film already have have been able to like kind of gather and be like, oh, okay, this this person's on our side, you know, um, and we're coming at it from the aspect of a performer and of somebody who grew up out here, and um, yeah, I just I felt like I needed to do that, like since most of it is just me with a camera and uh, like no crews or anything, no lighting, no like nothing like that, um, which is very fitting, right? Yeah, do, do it yourself, yeah. kind of. A DIY documentary about DIY spaces, pretty much. Um, But yeah, I just felt like I had to do it before some some douchebag comes in and does it. What were some of the challenges you had to go through to put it together? Um, A lot of it was getting a hold of people. Like, not the... Surprisingly, not the big names. Like, you know, people like Fantastic Negrito and Jello Biafra from Dead Kennedys and, and all those people. Like, they were they were pretty into it from the get-go and you know i mean there was just some scheduling stuff that we ended up working out but aside from that it was getting a hold of people who own spaces and being able to be let into the spaces and show a look at those spaces right or you know i think one of the one of the most challenging things was at first trying to get a hold of people that knew people or people that you know, had family or something, but at a certain point we were like, okay, like we're just not going to hit up any more of them because like, you know, they've been through enough. They probably don't want to be reminded of it. And, um, you know, some people were like, Oh, thank you so much for trying to shed light, but I'm not ready to be a part of that, a part of something like that. You know, everybody respectfully declined. Um, so that, that was kind of challenging, but you know just getting into certain spaces and letting us film around when it was such a and it still is such a delicate time for underground warehouse spaces huh. where you know the you know the health department's coming in or like whoever's coming in um 
to make sure everybody's up to code and everybody's kind of worried about getting shut down because after Ghost Ship, so many places were shut down. Uh, and, um, yeah, I think that was definitely one of the biggest challenges was, you know, sh- trying to shed the light and, like, getting access, you know, and being mm-hmm. like, hey, like, we're not we're not looking to, you know, fuck you guys over here. Did you notice any motifs or any reoccurring themes that when it came to talking about, you know, do yourself warehouses and those kind of shows and Well, I I think definitely certain things like rung out that that were inherent in, in every single one of those spaces. Like, you know, there was definitely a community uh in in each space that we covered. Uh, there's definitely like it, the sense of like um, that that not all those spaces are fucked up like ghost ship right. was was definitely something that I gathered from from a lot of it uh, a lot of places because like I think people assumed you know oh yeah well most of these most of these spaces are about to crumble. But that's that's not the case. I mean, most of them are fairly, if not completely, up to code. They're they're pretty damn close, right? You know, and um, so that was definitely something that reoccurred. That kept reoccurring. You know. Yeah, I know. Here at local artists here in San Jose, they 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 also were deeply affected by it. Um, yeah. Because they they also know other artists who were yeah. in the tragedy, but those who had do do DIY. Uh, galleries and so on. Yeah, uh, they did feel like it was kind of stigmatized. You know, the the idea oh, yeah, yeah. that that having these shows in unsafe spaces. Yeah, although they they they've literally blood, sweat, and tears trying to create such a space. Yeah, and uh, I mean that's that's another thing too is that like just you know most of the spaces are, they're fairly up to code if not if not fully, but. The thing is, I mean, people play spaces like that because so many spaces are getting, like, just regular venues are getting shut down. Or, like, getting to play a regular venue as a band oftentimes has just a whole load of shit that, like, you know, you generally don't want to deal with. Um, So, I mean, there's that, and then there's also the affordable housing aspect, which, you know, like, I mean, without places like... DIY spaces you know you don't you don't have a place that somebody who's not from here can go and like focus on their craft and pay maybe $300 in rent you know that doesn't exist anywhere like you gotta you gotta be a techie to to afford a space out here essentially mm-hmm. now while you're creating this documentary and you're interviewing all these people involved what do you feel was the biggest lesson that this provides this tragedy i i think just kind of uh you know supporting your community and supporting your your local art essentially was something that everybody could agree with you know um and when it comes to the diy spaces i mean a lot of people are turned off to going to them now because they're like oh i don't want to be trapped or anything but it's like you know that's that's most likely not going to be the case this was a one in a million thing where the owners literally like didn't give a shit you know um 
So I think definitely a, a big thing was supporting your local community and supporting your, your local art, but at the same time also just getting involved beyond, you know, uh, beyond going to shows and beyond, you know, doing whatever online, you know, actually going to city council meetings and, you know, talking to the people in charge and being like, hey, like this, this place is important to me and I feel like we can keep it going. And I feel like, you know, just providing solutions because a lot of the people out here, I mean, including myself for a while, just, just bitch and not, you know, actually try to do anything about it. And then you're like, oh, I found well. myself in that. Oh, yeah, myself, yeah. Yeah. And that's something I think we're all guilty of. Uh, you know, we, we'd rather post up on Facebook as I as I do and be like why isn't this happening but like what I should be doing is like oh I should be going to the actual people in charge and be like hey like let's try to work this out so you know that was something everybody in the film suggests like get involved with your community and support your local art and do it in a way that's not just like, oh, you know, fuck the government and fuck the city council. Like, actually, like, provide some ideas. Seek a, a partnership with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, a lot of the time, yeah, it's like, fuck those people and they're, you know, terrible well, and greedy. But I at think, the same time, you know. I mean, I think from a distance, um, it's easy to point fingers. Mm-hmm. It's easier to provide criticism. Yeah, but one thing I've noticed, uh, not just Ghostship, but other nearby tragedies, uh, not, not not specifically related to to the art. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is that once you find it, that's if it's something in your backyard and that you have some power to of influence. Yeah, it, it's it's you really got got to make a. You gotta go out there put yourself out there for sure yeah make the conscious effort you know? right like for me like I know for sure like I, I was you know always you know talking about the scene and this and that I was like you know what I, I, and I, in some way this podcast helped me with it because I'm talking with a variety of artists and yeah, individuals yeah. and I'm like there's a whole different avenues out there that we're not known about yeah but it, it took me simply you know talking to people to be like oh this is going on and this is what helps out the community yeah yeah definitely and I, and I feel a lot, uh, especially in comedy and music, it's people concentrate on their own work first and foremost. Yeah. Before really, you know, going out there and 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 seeing if they could help build something. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? Oh no, totally. Like I mean, I've definitely been guilty of being that person that's like, yeah, I'll totally be at the show. Like, yeah, I'll, yeah, put me on the guest list or whatever. And then like I. I don't show up because oh no <laughs> fucking tired of, from work or something like that but like you know i've made a i've made a conscious effort now as like somebody that realizes oh shit when i do show up to something somebody else will show up to something and when i do show up to something like i meet people and i like get to get to know my scene a little bit better and yeah. you know the the more i do that the more places i go where people recognize me and it's just like everybody just feeds off each other artistically if if everybody keeps actually just doing what the fuck they say they're going to do right you know so you finished the documentary fully now yeah it's um it's done for the most part we had a screening at uh uptown on October 13th and uh how did that go 
it was it was really good. We actually uh, room was filled, uh, all the seats were filled, uh, and it was really cool because not being somebody that considers themselves a filmmaker and seeing other people watch your film and consider you a filmmaker from that it was I mean that was a personal victory but then also I feel like a lot of people in the crowd were you know really retaining a lot of the knowledge that the people in the film are giving off mm-hmm. um and you know we we did a little Q&A where you know Jello Biafra uh of Dead Kennedys or formerly of Dead Kennedys and uh, Jesse Townley of the Pathogens, who's also on the rent board for Berkeley. Um, the three of us went up and we did like a little Q and A, uh, and we just you know talked about how to help the situation. And I think the phenomenons played, and yeah, I mean that that was a great night, and it was it was so good that a bunch of other um, people who own businesses out in Oakland were like, hey, we want to. We want to show show your film. So now we have a uh, showing on December 3rd at The Hatch in Oakland. Uh, we have a showing on December 10th at 924 Gilman, which is, you know, the venue that everybody in the world came from in, uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, and then December 16th, we're showing it at Independent Brewery. Um, so yeah, we have we have more showings now, and uh, it's it's going really well, and I think I think it's helping get the message out there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anything else, the showings and the people that I've met, it's just it's brought this little community together, you know. Uh, you know, like I I never would have been attached to something like Alternative Tentacles, which is Jello Biafra's record label. I never would have been, you know, connected with them had I not done this, or like connected with uh Black Ball Universe, who's, you know, Fantastic Negritos uh label, or like the Oakland Mind, who's uh uh Oakland Mind is a um group of people who get kids off the streets and they get them into ciphers and like, you know, rapping or breakdancing or like you know all that shit instead so it's really cool to like you know kind of be a little more involved with the community and show people like oh yeah this is this is what these people are doing as well and you know you can you can help them out you know hmm. all right zach it's we hit the one hour mark we're oh almost, yeah yeah almost gonna get out of here oh yeah yeah for but sure, before for we sure. get out of here something i do with musicians who come on here is i tell them can you talk a bit about the evolution of your instruments from the first instrument that you got that meant something to you to the current instrument you're playing now. Yeah. Um, it's funny. The The first instrument I got was... Uh, it was a BC Rich Warlock because I was a, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a, a metalhead punk guy at heart. And um, when I look back on it, it's, it's one of the shittiest guitars. <laughs> I mean, if you're not... If you can't play like Dimebag Daryl, like yeah, it's you know. Did you get it? Did someone buy it for you? Uh, yeah, I got it. I got it for a birthday present, and I, I had wanted it since uh, since I was a kid, cause it was like, it was one of the I don't know. I had just seen like you know the 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 rock guys play BC Riches, so mm-hmm. I was like, I gotta get that guitar. Um, and uh now i i played 
I, I don't even I think it's a Gino brand uh, guitar and it's like acoustic semi hollow body but you know now I have like a, a semi hollow Gretsch I have like you know I'm trying to get a Rickenbacker sometime bass wise because I've been picking the bass back up but um, yeah evolution wise honestly I feel like my voice has been the thing that's evolved the most hmm. out of out of any instrument that I've actually played um, I've remained kind of stagnant as far as my actual guitar bass playing where I've I've been to a level where I'm like oh, alright I'm decent I can I can write a song and I can play live like we're good, you know, um, which is something I need to get over and actually take lessons. But I took uh, quite a, like, I took voice lessons for a little while and watching that progression and that evolution of that has been really cool because it's a lot of things that I'm like, oh shit, I didn't, I didn't know I can do that. And like, I didn't know that, like... I could hit this note this way instead of this way, and it's it's cool to use the voice as an instrument uh, more so than I would have in the past. So yeah, <laughs> awesome. Uh, where can listeners check out your stuff? Oh, um, you could check out uh, any of my stuff at zachbateman.bandcamp.com. That's uh, z a c k bateman.bandcamp.com, and uh, you know if you search me on Google bunch of you know the instagrams and the twitter and all that shit will pop up so awesome zach thank you for coming yeah thank you man all right guys that's it this week uh i'm releasing this on a sunday so have a great sunday see you guys next week or better yet, get uh, stay tuned for next week's episode. We got a local comedian stopping by. Support Zach Bateman by going to his zachbateman.bandcap.com website. Check out his music. Download. I, I, I listened to his entire album, and I frankly enjoyed it very much. So I highly encourage you guys to go check it out. Once again, at zachbateman.bandcap.com. All right, guys. Have a good one. Uh, have a great Thanksgiving. And uh, I'll see you guys next Sunday. I will be a couple pounds bigger. So stay tuned till next week. Have a good one. And don't forget, November 29th, it is the GMS Podcast uh, Comedy Show. And don't forget to visit GMSPodcast.com. All right, guys, have a good one.